Sketches from Scripture presents Light in the Darkness, a teaching series from the stories of Genesis. Light in the Darkness is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be exploring the narrative structure and style of the book of Genesis as context for better understanding of Scripture. This will help us trust more in these scriptures by demystifying them, taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events in real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast scatters your darkness and makes the great light abundant in your life. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others. Just want to say welcome to those of you watching live and to those of you who will watch this later. And tonight we're going to be looking at the first two chapters of Genesis um, and the beginnings of God's story for all people. If you're a person of faith, I pray this will open your eyes to the depth of the scriptures that you already trust. If you're a skeptic, then I pray that this will open your curiosity to the story that has captured the whole world and turned it upside down time after time. Uh, and if you are anxious or lonely, and I pray that the story of Genesis will show you the one who created all things and that he did so to love you and to be loved by you. And I pray that you find peace in that. Uh, Jesus, a rabbi who claimed to be the Son of God, says, I am not alone because the Father is with me, and I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And that's from uh, John chapter 16. So we'll get back to Genesis in just a second. I'm just kind of waiting for some more people maybe to uh, to pop in. So I'm just going to kind of throw some ads your way um, just a little bit. One is for five coffees in a book. So if you'll check out fivecoffeesinabook.com, um, that will um, be something that I may go live about later and possibly be even reading um, the, uh, the book online. It's a great way to overcome isolation and anxiety. You can do it for free. You can do it uh, over the phone. You can do it over Skype, FaceTime, Zoom. It was developed to be done uh, you know, uh, drinking coffee with somebody out at a coffee shop. Can't do that right now. Shouldn't do that right now. Um, so you can do it virtually. No problem. It's, uh, mainly just the, I would love for you to do it visibly rather than just over text or phone. If you can, if you have the access to that, but it's totally for free. The questions are free. The book is free and you can make friends for life. Even people you're already friends with, it'll deepen your relationships. I've experienced it. Some of the early uh, other people that have gone through it have also experienced that. Very uh, surprised to see how their relationships were deepened. So it's fivecoffeesinabook.com. Uh, it's also on uh, Facebook and Instagram at Five Coffees in a Book. And you can see the questions there at uh, the website. You can put your email address in and get the ebook for free. So check that out. Share it with other people because it might be something that's helpful in a time of isolation and anxiety uh, for people to be able to talk with each other about something that provides some hope, uh, Lord willing. 
And like I said, I may go live about this later, maybe even read portions of the book. If I do that, I'll do it from my uh, Facebook page, my author page, which is written by Paul Andrew Skidmore. Um, it's facebook.com slash Parabolos Books. Uh, P-A-R-A-B-O-L-O-S Books, Parabolos Books. A couple of other things that you uh, may want to check out if you're interested in the things that I'm talking about tonight. Uh, I, I do have a blog that I'm working on. haven't fully released it yet, um, but I've told a few people about it. Skidmore.substack.com. It's a blog called Sketches from Scripture. Basically, I'm taking little pieces of Scripture and creating little short stories that come out of that. They're first drafts. You know, they're nothing that I really spent a lot of time on. But there's a new story every Saturday. You can get a free subscription to the stories. Uh, paid subscribers get some extra things on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but if you if you subscribe to just the free thing, then you'll get an email every Saturday that's got the story in it, or you can read it on the blog. So again, I haven't fully launched it yet, so here's your chance to be some of the first people to get in on it and take a look at it, and uh, you feel free to share it with other people if it's something that you like. Uh, I've been home. I've got, hopefully the sound is coming through okay. I've got this uh, mic here that I've been using to do some audiobook recording. And I've got Chowbella and Kindling both pending as audiobooks. It'll take a couple of weeks before those are ready. And that's if everything continues as normal. Um, so, but if you have Audible or if you have uh, Apple Books where you listen to audiobooks, get ready because hopefully those will be uh, available on the store in a couple of weeks. And speaking of books, you know, a great way to support your freelancers and artists is to buy their work. And I know everyone's discretionary spending is kind of ratcheted down right now, but if you need reading material, I've got it. It's paperbacks and eBooks. They're on Amazon. They're on Apple books. You can find links at skidmorep.com slash books. And, um, you know, pretty much all film and video production in the country has been halted right now. But if you know somebody with a, a small business that could use some marketing technical or, or video help, uh, I'd be glad to do what I can over a video conference and email. You can see all that stuff at skidmorep.com also, but, uh, but you'll find the books there on the books page. Okay. So let's get into the Genesis talk for tonight. So we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter one and two. Uh, I am going to be reading. Um, but if you would like to read along in your own translation that you have near you, uh, feel free. I'll be reading from Robert Alter's uh, translation, which you know I hope is okay copyright-wise over this live video stream. Um, if not, he can email me, I guess. Um, before we read it, let me just kind of set the stage a little bit. I had a friend, um, and he had some some crises going on in his life and he wanted to talk with me about them. He felt like I was the person to talk to just a little terrifying for me, particularly given some of the crises that he had going on that I had no idea how to help with. And so basically the one thing that I can do with people is read scripture is read the Bible. So I said, well, why don't you read the Bible with me? Because I think the Bible has some of the answers to maybe some of these things that you're going through. And he said, okay, I'm willing to do that just so that we have something to talk about. But I'm not really sure that I believe the Bible because I know some, I said, well, have you ever read it? He said, well, no. I said, well, then how do you know you don't believe it? He said, well, you know, I know some of the things that are in the Bible and I don't believe those things. I said, okay, like what? He said, well, you know, that the earth was created in seven days. You know, I, I don't believe that. And I said, well, you know, actually scripture says the earth was created in six days. Uh, just saying that maybe we should look at what the Bible actually says and doesn't say before we decide that we believe that or not, you know? 
And um, I said to him, look, uh, a lot of the questions that you have about scripture and can you trust it and some of the historical accuracy and some of those things, why, why don't you assume that maybe I'm kind of a smart person? Maybe I've had those questions myself. Maybe I've sought out answers to those questions and find them, found them satisfactory to keep my faith. And so will you take my faith on credit for as long as you can? And when that credit line runs out, no problem. We'll we'll sit down and we'll we'll deal with whatever is impeding you from moving forward. And um and he 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 seemed to respond to that. He said, Yeah, okay, that's a good idea. So we started with Gospel of John and read a few things. And um it did come back later that I think he was really attracted to Scripture. I think he was really attracted to the Gospel of John and the, and the character of Jesus in particular. And I think he wanted to believe what he was reading. But it, it came down to sort of these walls that he had up about, can I believe the Bible? Can I believe Scripture? Can I believe what I'm reading? And so um, basically the way I approached that was, you give me the wall, and we'll see if that is something that we can either tear, tear down or scale or go around. And we'll just deal with them one at a time rather than just dealing with a big mass of, of issues. And he seemed to be amenable to that as well. So eventually one of the, his first, you know, real stumbling block was the opening sentences of the Bible, which is the creation story and how that just didn't really fit in with what he understood about creation. So um, we will come back to the story um, in a minute. But I want to read um, the text first, make some um, comments about the text, and um, just a few applications. And I'll try and make tonight shorter than last night. Um, so again, I'm reading from Robert Alter's translation uh, from the five books of Moses, or you can get his entire Hebrew Bible uh, translation and commentary. He does his own translation, and he is translating primarily to preserve the narrative style, because the style is so critical to the understanding of what you're reading. So if it reads like uh, stereo instructions, you're going to listen one kind of way. And if it reads like Dr. Seuss, you're going to read another kind of way. And you're going to have a different approach to your understanding of what you're reading. And so narrative style is very critical to understanding the content that we're looking at. And I think that very much applies to what we're looking at in Genesis 1 and 2. So. Um, Let's uh, go on and read. <clears throat> you can hear I'm losing my voice a little bit. Some of this was talking for 45 minutes straight last night. Most of it is allergies from the beautiful um, Bradford pears we have in our front yard that are um, making my nose run and no other symptoms. So for now, everyone is good here. So here is uh, Genesis uh, chapters 1 and 2. When God began to create heaven and earth... And the earth then was welter and waste, and darkness over the deep, and God's breath hovering over the waters. God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And it was evening, and it was morning, first day. And God said, Pause here for a second and just say, watch for character introductions as we read through Genesis. Um, when new things are introduced, watch how they're introduced. Um, the first words that somebody says uh, are very critical to understanding what their role in the story is going to be. 
uh, how they're introduced is very critical for understanding what their role in the story is going to be. And when you see someone speaking, expect a response. And so when you don't see a response, especially when it is specifically pointed out, what you must understand uh, is that there is something to understand there, that there's something to, to be learned from that. So when we see God speaking to light being created and that there's day and night, and then you see the phrase, and God said, that means the light did not respond to God. The light just did what light does, right? And so you'll see the phrase, and God said, a lot here in Genesis chapter 1. And what that is reiterating is the things that he spoke to just before had no response. They just did what he said, right? Um, so picking up uh, here in verse 5. And God said, let there be a vault in the midst of the waters and let it divide water from water. And God made the vault and it divided the water beneath the vault from the water above the vault. And so it was. And God called the vault heavens and it was evening and it was morning, second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered in one place so that the dry land will appear. And so it was. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering of waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth grow grass, plants yielding seed of each kind, and trees bearing fruit of each kind that has its seed within it upon the earth. And so it was. And the earth put forth grass, plants yielding seed, and trees bearing fruit of each kind. And God saw that it was good. And it was evening, and it was morning, third day. And you hear a lot of repetition here, right? Um, a lot of the Old Testament often seems repetitive. Part of that is the writing style of the ancient Hebrews. They didn't, when they had poetry, they didn't rhyme like we do, where things sound the same at the end of a sentence. If you think about it, it's kind of an arbitrary way to think that something's beautiful. You know, I mean, it's pleasing to the ear, of course. Um, so think of Hebrew literature as sort of a rhyming of ideas. They'll state an idea and then they'll restate it. And that's, that's how you know, oh, this is an important idea because it's being restated. So what you see here in all these days is God is saying something to do, and then those things are happening. So, um, picking up then again in um, uh, 12, I can't remember. Oh, I left off third day. Okay, so 14. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and they shall be signs for the fixed times and for days and years, and they shall be lights in the vault of the heavens to light up the earth. And so it was. And God made the two great lights, the great light for dominion of day and the small light for dominion of night and the stars. And God placed them in the vault of the heavens to light up the earth and to have dominion over day and night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And it was evening and it was morning, fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with the swarm of living creatures and let fowl fly over the earth across the vault of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that crawls which the water had swarmed forth of each kind and the winged fowl of each kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the water in the seas and let the fowl multiply in the earth. And it was evening and it was morning, fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of each kind, cattle and crawling things and wild beasts of each kind. And so it was. And God made wild beasts of each kind and cattle of every kind and all crawling things on the ground of each kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make a human in our image by our likeness. 
to hold sway over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air, of the heavens and the cattle and the wild beast and all the crawling things that crawl upon uh, that crawl upon the earth and god created the human in his image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and conquer it, and hold sway over the fish of the sea, and the fowl of the heavens, and every beast that crawls upon the earth. And God said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth, and every tree that has fruit-bearing seed, yours they will be for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and to all the fowl of the heavens, and to all that crawls on the earth, which has the breath of life within it, the green plants for food. And so it was. And God saw all that he had done. And look, it was very good. And it was evening and it was morning, the sixth day. So a couple of interesting things before we move on to chapter two. You notice that all the days, there's no the until the sixth day. And so all the, all the earlier days, there's this very poetic evening and morning, first day, evening and morning, second day. Right, And here we get to it's the sixth day. And that really preps us for what's going to happen with the seventh day. The seventh day, that phrase is repeated several times in the next thing that we're about to, to read. And it, you can understand why that is, especially to a Jew, because the Sabbath is very important to the Jewish people. And it's the seventh day. It's the last day of the week, right? Because on the seventh day, God rested. That's what we're about to read about. And so that's become a very important day, that seventh day, the seventh day, right? And so there's something specific about the day of God's rest versus all these days of creation that have happened so far. So we'll come back and we'll talk more about this uh, later. Let's go on and read uh, chapter two for now. Uh, oh, actually, one other thing I do want to say is in the where God says, let us create man. Um, in this translation, it says human, probably in a lot of your... Um, translations it just says man or a man the word there is adam as in adam where we get his name right adam is just the hebrew word for a man and like our english word man it can mean a male human or it can mean mankind all people a person of indeterminate sexuality or gender right so uh, the word Adam functions in much the same way. So to translate it man is a- appropriate and is a kind of a direct translation, but its meaning is uh, he created a person. He created a human. And we're going to read more about that now here in chapter two. Then the heavens and the earth were completed and all their array. And God completed on the seventh day the task he had done. And he ceased on the seventh day from all the task he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, for on it he had ceased from all his task that he had created to do. This is the tale of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So the chapter numbers and the verse numbers, you know, they were added later. They were added at a later time. They're not in the original text, obviously. I think most of us know that. And how paragraphs are broken up are kind of decided by translators. And many people will put that first um, uh, part of the verse there that I just read, this is the tale of the heavens and the earth when they were created, as the first part of the think of what follows. But narrative style-wise, it is actually kind of a summation of what has preceded. So what it's telling you is, this is the summary of how everything was created. So then the next thing that's going to happen is going to be a a more detailed story 
about how mankind was created and some more detailed aspects of that. So you'll hear a lot of people refer to this as two different creation stories. I'm sorry, I don't see that at all. In the same way, if I told you everything I've done in the last two weeks, and then and I took 10 minutes to do that, and then I told you what happened today, and I took 10 minutes to do that, the things that I say today might be included in the summary of the two weeks, but I'm obviously going to say more things in talking about just from today. So you can see how we do this all the time in natural language and natural storytelling. So it doesn't mean that there's two different creation stories. It just means here's a more detailed account of when um, man was created and when humans were created. So uh, picking up there in what I think is verse five, my, my verses numbers are a little weird here. So forgive me if I, if I get the numbers wrong. On the day the Lord God made heavens, uh, made earth and heavens, no shrub of the field being yet on the earth, no plant of the field yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not caused rain to fall on the earth, and there was no human to till the soil, and wetness would well from the earth to water all the surface of the soil. Then the Lord God fashioned the human hummus from the soil. He's chosen the word hummus there because he's playing on what's going on in the Hebrew there. It's the Hebrew is making a pun between the human and the soil with the word uh, Adam and Adama, I think, which means uh, soil. So he's you know, human and a hummus. You see here the, the alliteration, the pun that's going on there. Hummus from the soil and blew into his nostrils the breath of life. And the human became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden to the east, and he placed there the human he had fashioned. And the Lord God caused to sprout from the soil every tree lovely to look at and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Now a river runs out of Eden to water the garden and from there splits off into four streams. The name of the first is Pishan, the one that winds through the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is goodly. Bedillium is there and lapis lazuli. And the name of the second river is Gihon, the one that winds through all the land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, the one that goes to the east of Ashur. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the human and set him down in the Garden of Eden to till it and watch it. And the Lord God commanded the human, saying, From every fruit of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of knowledge, good and evil, you shall not eat. For on the day you eat from it, you are doomed to die. And there's a very interesting Hebrew thing that's happening there where they will use a uh, the participle form of the verb paired with a verb to provide emphasis. And so basically the language here is uh, God saying, if eating you eat it, dying you'll die. That's kind of how it is in the, um, in the Hebrew. So on the day of you eat of it, you are doomed to die. And the Lord God said, notice there's no response from the human. God goes right on and continues speaking. And the Lord God said, it is not good for the human to be alone. It's the first time, by the way, God said that something's not good. It is not good for the human to be alone. I shall make him a sustainer beside him. And the Lord God fashioned from the soil each beast of the field and each fowl of the heavens and brought each to the human to see what he would call it. And whatever the human called a living creature, that was its name. And the human called names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the heavens and to all the beasts of the field. But for the human, no sustainer beside him was found. And the Lord God cast a deep slumber on the human and the human slept. And God took one of his ribs and closed over the flesh where it had been. And the Lord God built the rib he had taken from the human into a woman, and he brought her to the human. And the human said, This one, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, this one shall be called woman. 
for from man was taken this one. Therefore, does a man leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife, and they become one flesh? And the two of them were naked, the human and his woman, and they were not ashamed. There's a couple of things about this section here. You notice in this translation, it keeps saying the human, the human, the human. In our English translations, it often says the man, because we think of that as Adam. Um, It could be possible that the human that was created was some sort of genderless human that was then separated into man and woman in what what we're about to see that follows. I don't know. I don't know the mechanics of it. I don't know what was going on. I just know that the language, it does use the Hebrew word Adam. It can mean a man. It can mean a human. It can mean Adam, right? So uh, it's very careful that when we're reading, we must be very careful when we're reading scripture that we see what it says, but we also uh, see what it doesn't say and that we don't say that it says something it's not saying and that we don't ignore something that it is saying. must have a very complete theology. Uh, likewise, the word for rib, if you do a Hebrew word study of all the times that word for rib is used in scripture, only very few times does it refer to rib. Another few times it refers to something like boards. So you can imagine if you walk into an old chapel or maybe a ski lodge and you can see the rafters up in the ceiling, you'd call that maybe like a ribbed ceiling or a vaulted ceiling, right? You see those ribs, right? And so we can think of ribs outside of a human context functioning sort of the same way. What they're doing is they are supporting the sides. They are a support. They're supporting uh, the sides, the walls, or they're supporting the roof, right? In a building. In a human, the ribs are the side of a human being. And most of the time, over 75% of the time, you see that word, the Hebrew word for rib, it means something like side or opposite most of the time, it means something like side. So you de- start to develop a very different theology coming out of Genesis if you look and see that God might have taken the side from the human rather than just taking a single rib, because it's that ri- that word can mean both of those things. So we can't definitively say it means one or the other. And so when the Bible is a little open-handed about things, we must remain open-handed about it. We cannot speak where the, bi- where the Bible is not definitive, right? So it, mean, it would mean something entirely different if we believed that the man's side was taken away and fashioned into a woman, because now no longer is the woman taken from a small piece of man and therefore inferior to him, but instead she's taken from his side and she's equal to him. And honestly, the way the Bible treats women, I have to believe that that might be the real meaning of this Genesis 1 passage, that the woman is taken from his side, because Hebrew scripture written at a time when women were very inferior in all societies on planet Earth. Scripture is always elevating the status of women, including the book of Genesis, which we'll see in later stories. But we see it right here with the woman coming from the side of of the man. And that word build, you may have heard me say he built the woman. That word is to kind of be paired with the fed. He fashioned the man. It's potter language right? He fashions the man from the wet clay, but now the man is here. He's like a he's like a, a, a fired piece of pottery. He's hard now, so now he must be broken in half and something must be rebuilt. And now we have woman. And she's given as a sustainer beside him. This phrase that's there, uh, often translated help meet or sometimes helper, which is a kind of really bad translation of that. Although the meaning is correct, it has a lot of implications that are really problematic. That, that phrase for sustainer beside him is notoriously problemat- problematic in how to translate it properly. 
But there's two phrases there, and one of them means um, an, an assist, a helper, but but not in a subservient role. So not like my assistant at my office, but rather um, if we were to go um, if we were to, if we were to go to war with somebody, an ally might be a better term, right? That very much is it's a much more equal term than like assistant or helper. Right. And that's emphasized by the second term, which definitely means uh, beside, opposite him. So, again, you see that play in language between rib and beside him. Right. Taken from his side and placed beside him. Constantly, Genesis is using these plays on words. The Hebrew scriptures always use these play on words and these alliterations, which sometimes get lost in our English translation, to tell you some very important information that is going on. And I honestly believe right here in Genesis chapter 2, the, 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 the God through the writer, the author of Genesis is telling us man and woman, both created by God, have some equal status on planet earth to each other and in the eyes of their Lord. And we would do well to recognize that and behave appropriately. Now notice the first words of human beings in recorded history, you know, around verse 23. And it's a song. Isn't that wonderful? The first recorded words in human history uh, are a man singing a love song to his woman. And uh, ladies, we've been at it ever since, right? So not not unexpected. Uh, but the, the human doesn't speak until there's another human uh, to respond to. Because when God says to do something, it just happens and is done. But now there's another human with which to speak. And it's such a beautiful moment. All the man can do is break out in song, and it's recorded here for us, and it's lovely. Right after the song, we have some narration. It's a sort of narrator commentary. Therefore, does a man leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and they become one flesh? Sort of explaining why things are the way they are. But what we see right after that, then, seems to almost contradict it. They become one flesh. The next phrase, and the two of them. Well, wait a minute. Didn't we just say they were one flesh? Yeah, that's some narrative conflict that Genesis is giving you. It's doing that on purpose. It takes one flesh and immediately contrasts it with the two of them. It is foreshadowing what we'll read in our next video in uh, Genesis chapter 3, where some conflict arises and some division occurs. And that last verse of chapter 2 goes on to continue to foreshadow that. And the two of them were naked, the human and his woman, and they were not ashamed obviously foreshadowing what's going to happen in chapter 3, which we'll look at tomorrow. So that's Genesis 1 and 2 from Robert Alter's translation and the benefit of his notes from his commentary, which for which I'm greatly appreciative. So here's, here's creation. We call this the book of Moses, assuming it was written by Moses. It could have been written uh, after and or compiled after. Um, we don't really know who the author was, but it's attributed to Moses. You got to remember who Moses was, right? So you got to go into Exodus and read who Moses was. But from a very young child, he's brought up in Pharaoh's household. So even though some of his family is there uh, to kind of keep him connected to his people, and it's clear he still has some kind of connection to his people, it certainly seems that he a lot of his education would have been uh, from the house in which he lived, meaning Egyptian. So what was the Egyptian creation myth? Here's a really poor summary of the creation myth that I probably got from like Wikipedia or something. So you don't, if you've got a 
test on this in your online class tomorrow. Don't use this as notes, but I'm just going to give you some broad strokes of some things that I found in my study. So one of the Egyptian, one of the several Egyptian creation, creation myths is that a pyramidal mound appeared in the primordial soupy, watery darkness. And suddenly there was a God on it and he quote, mated with his shadow, which is a euphemism that I will leave you to decode. So he mated with his shadow to produce an offspring whose Egyptian names basically mean, basically mean sneeze and spit. In other words, air and water, sort of the foundational elements of the cosmos, right? And then these siblings mated and produced the gods that made the earth and everything on it. Okay, kind of a bizarre story. This is one of several creation stories from Egypt, all of which bear some semblance to some parts of Genesis, but also very major diversions. Uh, Egypt later on had some sort of God above all gods, was even monotheistic for a brief period, if I recall correctly. So a lot of changes going on in Egyptian, in Egyptian mythology, but certainly not what we're reading here in Genesis 1 and 2. Well, the Hebrew people, they were from a, a region that would come to be known as uh, the land of Canaan. And so there were Canaanites living there. They came from there and were slaves in Egypt and then went back there. So it stands to reason they would be influenced by the Canaanite people either before or after Egypt. So what was the Canaanite creation myth? Okay. Well, you know, again, some similar characteristics, um, similar both to some of the Egyptian stuff, similar to some of uh, some of the details in Genesis. But basically in the Canaanite creation myth, everything is a God and mates and gives birth uh, to more gods. Lots of gods mating and giving birth to things. Uh, things are created out of things that already are there somehow. And it really doesn't seem to explain anything, at least that I could understand in my studies. Also, uh, to be blunt, not sure why we should care what they thought about how the universe was created, because not any of them are around anymore. So um, as they would say, a law and order, which we've been binge watching lately, uh, goes to credibility, Your Honor, right? So um, later, the Hebrew people were uh, taken captive by the Babylonians. And so if you are an academic scholar and you want to really put late dates on a lot of the biblical stuff, you might say Babylon had some influence in some of the stories that are being written or some of the mythos uh, that's being created here. So, okay, so what is the Babylonian creation myth? Similarly, has gods mating and making more gods, going to war and mating with each other? Uh, it's just kind of a big free-for-all in the Babylonian world. And everything that is a force is a god of some kind, right? So compare that to what we just read, and they're just so starkly different. So you have to kind of wonder, where did Moses get the story from, right? So even nowadays, right, we have science that might explain how uh, the universe is created or how the universe operates. So... If you kind of look at how scientific understanding has gone, well, there's a lot of scientific learning that was done, believing that the earth was the center of everything. And then we figured well, that didn't quite work. So, uh, oh, you know, the sun, the sun is the center of everything. Well, okay, actually, you know, the sun is at the center of a solar system and there's these other planets and that solar system, it's in a galaxy that has a center. And so it's spinning. And then, well, also that galaxy is hurtling through the universe, which is expanding or is it contracting? Well, no, it's expanding. Um, and then we have uh, atomic science and we have subatomic science and we have quantum physics. We've got God particles and dark matter. And we still don't understand what light is or how gravity works. And we're still, still so much to learn about the universe and how it was created and, and, and how it works. 
And there's still lots of question marks and lots of things that um, we have to believe must be true because we see the mathematical models. And so we, when we go into our practical models, we must take the math in there with us. And so you see that even scientists are uh, going to have faith in something. They have faith in these mathematical models when they're doing the practical things that they're doing. If they didn't have faith in the mathematical models, there's no way we could put a Mars rover right down in an area the size of a football field. I mean, uh, think about all the math that must be involved in something like that. So you've got to have faith in something in order to have itself worked out in practicality. So I just want to go back to a minute uh, for a minute to my story about my friend that I was reading the Bible with. There came this point in time where he said, you know, <clears throat> I want to keep reading, but I just don't know if I should trust this book. I said, what? Let's start with your first objection. What is it? He says, well, creation of the world. That's a big one. I said, okay. First, before we look at what scripture has to say about it, you tell me how you think the earth was created. Or how do you think the universe was created? Based on what you know. He's pre-med. He's a science-educated guy. He's, he was not an uneducated person. He said, well, you know, in summary, paraphrasing, um, everything was all kind of in one place. And then for some reason, we don't really know why, there was a big bang and everything began expanding and everything was kind of a big soup and then started to kind of take shape as gases and plasmas and things sort of began to separate. Right right away, the first thing he said was right away, light matter and dark matter separate. That's the first thing that happens. And then there's this sort of atomic soup and everything starts to kind of separate out into different forms of matter and different elements. And then you have, you know, um, galaxies and stars forming and around that, and then you have planets forming. And so the earth would have been a big molten ball, but eventually it would have cooled and, um, the gases would have condensed and water would have formed on it. And then as Pangea separated, the waters would uh, separate out and then you would have single cell organisms and then you would have uh, sort of vegetable plant life that would grow. And then after that, you would have, you know, life in the water and then sort of airborne life. And then you would have, you know, mammals after that. And then last of all, you know, would be humans come really late on the scene time-wise. And I said, okay, that's a good summary. That's kind of what I understand just from, you know, eighth grade science class, whatever, right? College, you know, uh, geology class, whatever. Okay. So now imagine this. Now imagine that you get to see all that. Okay. For whatever reason, you're selected by the powers behind the universe to sort of sit in the bleachers and watch everything you just described happen over a, let's say a six day period. And you're able to watch all of that take place. Then you have to take what you see and you have to turn around and you have to describe it to, remember, if this is a book of Moses, he's describing it to the people that have been liberated from slavery from Egypt. So you have to describe it to these former slaves, almost all of whom are illiterate, almost all of whom would probably only know the creation stories of the Egyptian culture, because that was what was all around them all the time. So you're giving them new information. You're trying to describe it to them in a way that they can understand in a language that I think maybe only had about 30,000 words, which is a very narrow language. They don't even have a word for universe. They just say sort of cosmos talking about the earth and creation. Um, so you've got to use this narrow language and you've got to explain it in a way that not only the illiterate, but even just kind of the dumb people and the children can really understand what you're talking about. And you've got to explain it in such a way that it is memorable so that they can pass it on because explaining it contains some important information. So you're going to put it into a song that they can remember so that they can share it with their children generation after generation. 
And now, let's read Genesis chapter 1. And when you know it, Genesis chapter 1 goes right through everything he said. Light matter separating from dark matter. Light from darkness is the first thing that happens. Right? Heavens are separated from the earth. Water forms and is separated and the land appears and vegetation appears and animals appear and humans are laid on the scene. And many of the things that he described, we have only learned in the last century through science. So I got to wonder, how does this 80-year-old shepherd raised in an Egyptian pagan culture have access to this information? How is he able to write a poem, a song that so closely resembles what we actually do know about the origins of life in the universe? So um, I say all that, and yet I have a caveat, which is this. Do we see science in Genesis 1? Absolutely. Is that the reason Genesis 1 was written? I don't think so. Not at all. Else it would be written in an entirely different way. So while I hopefully have given you some confidence that the science of Genesis is good, relatively speaking, what we must look at is, why was it written? Why is it written in the way that it's written? Look at what it keeps doing over and over again. It keeps saying, God did it, and God said, and whatever he says, exactly what he says is exactly what happens. It's letting you know in every instance, in every medium on earth, in space, in the air, in the sea, on land, in vegetable life, plant life, in animals, in humans, God did it. God's in control. It's under his will. It's by his word. That's what the Song of Genesis is about. That's what it's trying to reiterate over and over and over again. And if you have trouble remembering the six days of creation, just remember it this way. There are three days in which God creates a space by creating order from chaos. And then there are three days in which God takes that space and fills it with abundance. Right? So on day one, you see light and darkness. It's sort of a spiritual world being talked about. Day two, you see the heavens and the waters being separated from each other, the sky and the, and, and the water being separated from each other. Day three, you say, you see the chaos of the water being separated and the dry land appearing. So you have the heavens, the waters and the land. Day four, you see the signs in the heavens, the sun and the moon and the stars. Day five, you see life in the water and the, in the lower heaven, the, the sky. And day six, you see life on land, culminating with humankind. And so God creates order from the chaos, and then he fills it with abundance. And there's no aspect of life that God doesn't reign over. That brings us to that seventh day where God rested. So we began, if you remember from the last video, tohu abohu, chaos, right? We began with chaos, and now we end with rest, stillness, peace. Now, there are only two things in the creation story that are not declared good. They're not declared ungood. We talked about the one thing that was declared not good, and that was loneliness. But uh, there are two things in the creation story in Genesis 1 that are not declared good. One of them is the heavens. They're just created. And that might be because all the religions of the world at that time put heavy emphasis on worshiping the stars, worshiping the moon, um, seeing the signs in the heavens as gods. And so it, that may be why, as the heavens are created, they're not called good. It's very utilitarian. It's just there to keep people from worshiping it. The other thing that's not called good, interestingly enough, are, are humans. 
if you go back and look, when man was created, he's not directly called good. Humankind is not directly called good. Why is that? Good in the sense that it's used in Genesis 1 is not necessarily moral, like a moral good. It's about fulfilling purpose. Uh, another, A similar word, um, but less poetic word, is suitable, right? I made this tree. Yeah, that's good. Like that, that'll work. That's a tree, right? Okay, so that's kind of what the word good means. It's suitable. It means it's fulfilling its purpose. So why aren't humans called good? Because they have yet to fulfill their purpose. And it leaves a question hanging in the mind of the reader. Wait a minute, are humans good? And sort of the rhetorical answer is, it remains to be seen. And the whole rest of the book of Genesis is going to seek to answer that question. Are humans good? And so the question that we leave with, the question I'll leave you with, is what is our purpose? And will we fulfill it? Something for you to think about and pray about later tonight. If you got any questions about anything, please leave me some comments. You can direct message me. And I'll end where I began with these uh, words of peace from John 16. I am not alone because the Father is with me. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.